My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Josiah Lippincott. Uh, he is a former Marine officer. Um, he is a current student, if I'm not mistaken, at the Van Andel School of Statesmanship at Hillsdale College, and also a 2020 alumnus of the Claremont Institute's Publius Fellowship, and it's, it seems, or Publius, is it Publius? It's Publius, yeah. Okay, Publius Fellowship. Um, and uh, I'm very, uh, very happy to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much, Alex. I, I enjoy the opportunity to talk about my work. Yeah, it's, it's exciting because your work currently includes, um, I'm not going to call it shitposting. Uh, I'm going to call it a very <laughs> targeted, uh, aggressive, classy, distinguished attacks at yeah. the <laughs> establishment yeah. uh, and all of their you know minor bureaucrats and cronies and everyone who's uh, in, in that uh, org chart. Um, and you've done a, a fine job of it. And, and that's essentially how, how I found out about you because it's, it's yeah. very incredible <laughs> to see you. Um, you have um, sometimes kind of a, a bit of a scary energy, and I think that's great. I'm happy I'm on your side. I would not want to yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in the TikTok posting. Right. No way. So uh, very, very happy to have you on. I mean, you've, you've, um, you've thought about this thing. You've, you've been in the Marine Corps. Um, you are retired now. You're not part of, in any ways, affiliated with the Army. And right. I I understand why you aren't, um, but um, how how did we get to this point? I mean, what 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 went wrong, and when did it go wrong? And you know, I mean, a lot of people have seen this, the current state of the military. If you haven't, please do check out Josiah's Twitter feed. You will see yeah. what it looks like. What, what was the you know first domino uh, domino in your view? Yeah, so I, I think for me at least, I can talk about this. You know, I think one of the things I haven't covered on Twitter or in my public writings is my own experience and kind of how I ended up here. So this is probably a helpful place to do that. I was a a Marine Corps officer. I served for four years. I never saw combat. I've never claimed that I saw combat, Uh, but I did deploy. um, And I deployed to Okinawa in particular. Uh, My role was I was a a rocket launcher um, liaison officer. So I was working with, unusual for a junior officer, I worked with a lot of outside higher command um, units, um, headquarters spent a lot of time rubbing shoulders with planners talking about how to employ this long range system. And basically while I was there, it became painfully clear to me that the United States was in no position to wage a conventional war against anyone, much less the people's Republic of China. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I can go into the history if you want, but the, it comes down to something very simple. Nuclear war makes Conventional conflict between nuclear armed states, basically impossible. No rational state wants to fight a conflict that will end with itself being nuclear, uh, being annihilated in a nuclear fire. That does, that's not a strategy. It's not a winning strategy. And to my knowledge, no one has ever solved that problem. On the other hand, you have insurgency. 
which you are trying to occupy a country where people don't want you to be, and they're willing to fight you with small arms munitions for years at a time. And what we've seen is the American military is not competent to win either kind of conflict. And this has caused all kinds of spiritual problems. And more importantly, the military has been hijacked by the ideological left, and there's no way around it, but there are deep and abiding problems with the military establishment, and it has to be called out. Yeah, and you're, that's, that's your day job now, it seems. And it's yeah, a, close it's, to it. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, the, the last war that was won um, was when the Second World War, at least, you know, by, by the U.S. military. Um, is there, was there any, any, anything that I've missed since then? Is there any, any new stuff no. on the horizon? <laughs> no. And I would, I would argue, and you know, if you want me to be controversial here, here I'll go. <laughs> yeah. Um, World War II was a kind of victory, you know, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan were defeated as regimes, but the Soviet Union took over half of Europe and then the communists took over Asia. The Soviet Union occupied Korea. And just maybe less than 10 years later, we were there fighting another war against these communists. So I would argue that World War II, in many ways, is not what people think it is. It, it did not. Um, we, it's much more complicated than people think. The Soviet Union had agents all throughout the American government. And they had policies and interests that were not aligned with those of everyday Americans. So a lot of boomers especially look at Iwo Jima or Normandy and they think that's, that's so badass. Like America just was taking, taking names and defeating these powers. And in reality, you've got the, the communists, the Soviet government had access, for instance, Scott McMeekin in his book, Stalin's War, the Soviets had control of Newark Airport. They were receiving hundreds of billions of dollars in aid. They were receiving um, uh, technical information about nuclear weapons, some of which I think was provided by the American government willingly. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of problems there that people just don't want to touch. And since World War II, it's just been it's been really calamity after calamity. But none of them have been existential conflicts. So, you know, fighting to a draw in Korea, you know, I would say losing in Vietnam, um, the, even the first Gulf War, there are lots of problems here and they're not, they're not really wins. Um, and, and, and in fact, I think they've done a lot of damage. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you think that, um, I mean, w what was the cause of the U.S. essentially fighting the Soviet Union's war for it was it infiltration or was it just the fact that you know the Soviet Union had uh, a confident, powerful, energetic empire that it wanted to build while the U.S. was mature in, in terms of ideologically mature and wasn't really in that phase of you know um, aggressive exuberance. I would say a lot of it was naivete on the behalf of the American people. And a lot of it was the fact, as the Venona decrypts make very clear, there were Soviet agents all throughout the government. Uh, the, probably the most prominent example was Harry Hopkins, who was FDR's aide, basically his right-hand man. And I think um, either he or Harry Dexter White, who was also a Soviet fellow traveler, selected for, would have been vice president. I, Hopkins had serious medical problems. But what you see throughout there is that, uh, and McMeekin does a great job of portraying this, the Soviet line was being 
promulgated by American officials within the government. And, you know, everyday Americans were not tracking on this. They were told and then outright lying and propaganda. You know, for instance, look at Walter Durante at The New York Times feeding Stalinist propaganda about the massacre in Ukraine, the Holodomor, and, and just accepted as as you know, as gospel. I mean, this, it's hard for Americans to understand, but this deep state, um, the, the lying media that, that didn't, wasn't invented in the Obama administration, right? Like this is a problem that's been around for a while. And, um, you know, you just have to go to the, the entire world order is built on, um, the Nuremberg war crimes trials and the allied victory in world war II but you've got the communists present the whole time. Like, that's a huge problem. Like, they were in this, just to, to rant, if you will, in the summer of 1941, Stalin had invaded as many countries as Adolf Hitler. And he had murdered millions of people. There's no disagreement about that. Before the Auschwitz had even been fired up as a death camp, you had the purges, you had mass starvation, Stalin was not a good man, and, and yet you have FDR, you know, just drooling over this guy at Yalta and others, other places. And then, you know, um, American propaganda made for the Soviet Union, the Why We Fight series, it has a series on the battle for Russia, and it's just straight up Soviet propaganda. And, you know, you just have to come to terms with what was going on there. And, um, you know, I think maybe now, finally, 80 years later, we could start asking the right questions. And I think that's really where you have to go to really grasp the core problem here. Yeah, it does seem like we're we're living in the shadow of the Second World War. We're living in kind of the the um almost like essentially it's, we've we've made a religion out of that, out of that conflict. We've we've um projected all of our demons onto the Nazis versus you know the Jews or the the oppressed and you know it's it's kind of we're just replaying that that drama you know like a psychodrama up until this exact point um and i think you know if if you read james burnham you know like suicide of the west or you know there's a, a newer book by by Richard Gutko uh, the demon in democracy it does seem like there's a bit of a convergence between you know, liberalism proper and essentially they're not that far apart in terms of their, their goals in the sense that, um, you know, there, there is a, a, a progressive future, you know, every year is better. We're improving technologically. Um, you know, maybe the, uh, Soviets put more of an accent on, you know, the private property not being that important, but if you part with 50% of your tax income, uh, or if, if you part of 50% of your income in the form of taxes. And I don't necessarily know if the communists are much more, are much more, uh, you know, kleptocratic of, of, of private income than, than the, the, the liberals. So I don't know what, what's your perspective on the fact that, um, they're, they're pretty, you know, they, they're pretty convergent, these two ideas. Um, well, I mean, I think COVID has made this so obviously clear to anyone who's paying attention you simply have whole countries turned into prison camps. The work of Giorgio Agamben is very relevant here. The liberal solution to every single problem is mass surveillance and prisons. You, you have to keep people under tight control. You license every single thing that they do. You, are, you have to build data banks and uh, surveillance centers and data centers and Patriot Act. All of those things are... That's the liberal solution, right? Climate change. You need to stop eating meat. You need. We need to have a smart 
uh, thermostat's going to watch how much energy you use. You need to hook up everything to a computer that's going to be eventually transmitted back to some sort of external entity. You are not allowed to be free and independent. You need to submit to biomedical surveillance in order to cross the border, get on a plane, have a job. We need to know, are you a plague carrier or not? And so, yeah, I would say liberalism and communism are obviously different phenomena in some ways, but there's a lot of overlap in, in the instinct. The, you know, if you, if you talking about ideas can cause people to lose their minds, look at the kinds of people who gravitate to liberalism and communism you find a ton of overlap. And these ideologies are concerned with similar aims. Man as a stomach. You are a consumer. You are a material being. You got to remember, Marx was a turbo capitalist. He believed that the pinnacle of capitalism was communism. The libertarians stop at the, at the peak capitalism stage. But uh, but you know, and both the libertarian faction, the liber, the liberal faction, Oh man, you know, it's if only you're, you're going to have the withering away of the state. You're going to have the withering away of that older regime. They're very clear about this. And it's like they're, they're saying the same thing. Now they're different, but come on, it, it's the overlap, especially in our time, is, is disturbing. They're totalitarian ideologies. These are not, it's not the American founding principles. That much is very clear um, and, you know, I think worth analyzing. Yeah, I mean, you you keep even like in the context of Claremont, you know, people are talking about um, new founding, refounding. Um, can there be a refounding without the initial um, circumstances? Like in the sense that you know it was just a different type of nation, and you had different, um, you had a kind of a, a, an ideological substructure that you could build liberalism within, which was religion, or which was you know a um, even kind of ethnic homogeneity. You kind of had Anglo-Saxon mores yeah. and norms. So um, yeah, I, I don't know how how do you do a new founding on the substrate that you have right now. Well, you know, that's the difference between politics and political philosophy. You know, I, I read John Locke, the second and first treatise, and I say, look, I agree with basically everything he's saying there is right. You know, you got to have government by consent. Um, you need to have protection of rights. You need to have uh, the protection of morality. You know, he, he, you know, Locke is very critical of the sins that cross the main intention of nature. He refers to sodomy, incest, and adultery. You know, deeply moralistic. Um, the problem there is that, yeah, you, the form is less important than the matter out of which the regime is made, right? You can have the best constitution in the world. If no one has the spiritedness or the inclination to defend it, it it's, it, it's, it's a Republican speech only. You, you, you can talk about it all day long. It's not real. But I think people have to, I would say, and I'm, I'm concerned by this, but I, I don't, I think it's a real problem is that, you know, one of the things, uh, and I've been reading the second treatise, that's why it's coming to mind. Locke makes clear that if, you know, the protection of rights is more important even than a government by consent. And he says in the beginning of regimes, it's pretty natural to end up with a dictator in the sense of, yeah, that's the kind of government that will protect you. But it's not, it's not a Republican form of government. And, and, you, and I think the, the American right and the left, not these people don't get it. If you don't protect people's rights, if you don't make them safe, what's going to end up happening is they're going to turn to someone who will. And so the Republican Party can grift all day long. 
the Democrats can encourage crime and promote the weirdest, most bizarre ideological fetishes. You have to remember, if things get bad enough, people are going to start looking for solutions. So, you know, the whole point is if you have to appeal to heaven, if you are saying this regime is so degenerate, we can't fix it from within, you're in the, you no longer really have law in the ordinary sense. You, you're back to nature. And if I, if I were advising anyone, if anyone were to listen to me, and I consider myself a, a political moderate in this way, I'm a moderate centrist, you need to protect people's rights and you need to get back to having real law. Stop having government by edict. But is this is Joe Biden capable of that? I don't know. And and just to, to one last point, you know, and I agree. I, I love the Claremont Institute. Uh, I'm you know good friends with Ryan Williams with um, uh, Peterson. Again, I, 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 I my teachers are all defenders of the founding. What I would argue though is you have to remember they're arguing for a revolutionary politics and a spiritedness that makes that possible. So. Any discussion of ideas has to remember there is this core that's pretty radical and you can't, you have to come to grips with what that means. You know, uh, is what do you prefer? Do you prefer slavery or war? Which is, which do you prefer? Because that choice may one day become unavoidable. And um, are you going to fight for your freedom or not? That becomes a real question. Um, It's, it's not a happy question, but it's a question nonetheless. We're, we're definitely slowly sliding into uh, one form of kind of soft slavery um, because, you know, what, whatever you would call the last two years, democratic isn't one of the one of the labels no. that I apply to them. Um, and, and it is, you know, whatever, gentle totalitarianism, soft totalitarianism, velvet totalitarianism, but, you know, the totalitarianism is there. We've been, you know, constrained to, to live in our houses, to wear a very specific religious garb, to, um, you know, it, it's, it's just a, a, a complete, complete overreach and complete overreaction. I mean, I understand in the beginning, we didn't know exactly what COVID was, but uh, we've found out <laughs> it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a disease. It's a, it's probably endemic by now. It's not something, something we'll have to live with probably originated in, in suspicious circumstances and all sorts of information that we now have and uh, we didn't back then. So, um, yeah, uh, but to, to, to round this off, I'm, I'm, I wonder what you think about, you know, cause you were talking about essentially the clay, you know, the, what, what is the Republic made of? Who yeah. are the people that compose our, uh, our, you know, our, our, the West in general? Cause I mean, I'm, I'm in Romania. I'm one of the satellite States of, of the great yeah. empire. <laughs> uh, so I'm not necessarily, you know, in the middle of it, but, uh, I've lived in the UK and I, I feel the UK is, you know, is, is living the psychodrama as well. So the people are, I think, very similar, a very similar clay to what you have in, in, in America. So, I mean, just looking around, I do not think 99% of people that I know would not be capable of engaging in any sort of combat in any sort for any, I mean, they, what for, like it's, the question just doesn't even occur. Like yeah. what, what purpose, you know, who with it's just, it's just so completely outside of it. So, I don't even know what type of regime you can build with people who are just so rudderless or I, I don't know how to describe it, but you, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, part of it is the people of themselves, um, 
they don't, the mob does not philosophize is one way of, of putting this. They, people will be like, well, people are going to wake up. No, that's not really how that works. People have instincts and I don't want to dog this at all. The instincts are very powerful and very, very few people are really capable of, of thought in any sort of meaningful sense. It's, it's a small number, but um, the, the, the deeper point there is like, how do you make a regime out of the people who are here today? I, I think some of it is the people will surprise you. I, I can only speak in the American context. I think, well, I can speak about maybe the Japanese and Chinese context. I spent time in Asia. But uh, for the Americans, I would say there's a quite a significant percentage that are quite jealous of their rights and have a spirited willingness to defend them. They are at the fringe, right? They're not in power. They're not the kind of people you see on television. You know, my neighbors are not this white working class city in the rural Michigan is not, no one cares about these people. They don't even know what they're like. And so, but they're, they are, there's quite a core of virtue there that has not been extinguished. Um, so could you shape something out of that? I absolutely believe you can. I think Trump showed how that was possible. It, it, Trump just really wasn't willing to go full on. He just was always reticent to do that. He always, and he had bad, he is surrounded by bad advisors. And there's all kinds of reasons why that may be. But um, Trump really, I think, is the model for how do you take the, the health and life-giving instincts of the people and give them shape and, and a purpose, you know? And that's the role of, um, that's the role of people who are interested in public service or public life. Like, how do you just make this real? How do you, um, yeah, how do you, how do you, communicate these ideas. I think that's important. And it's, you know, don't, don't lose your mind either. The people are often much better instincts than anyone who claims to, to govern or lead them. Um, but there is a, a need for, for, um, for leadership, right? You need the Trumps. You need someone like that um, who can combine wisdom and power. That's really what you need if you're going to lead the people well and to give them the kind of regime, you know, that's the founder's role. Right. And this is a very thorny problem in pop political life. I mean, authors like Machiavelli, Locke, um, you know, they're all very deeply concerned with foundings and how to sustain a regime. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, it, maybe I don't know if that addresses the question, but I think it gets to the, the kind of problems. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you believe that there is also kind of a, a deeper structural problem here? Because I feel like this type of leadership is not, it's almost not possible with just the nature of institutions at the moment, uh, because we're, you know, allegedly led by experts. So the mm -hmm. experts are, you know, there's, it's, they're doing politics without, without doing politics. They're just, you know, they, they bring the common sense. They, they come in and, you know, do science, political science, social science, all sorts of science mm -hmm. that they execute on rather than, um, you know, there being, um, there's not really need for leadership in an expert-led organization. You know, it's, it's all about the, the facts that you bring to the table. So I feel like, you know, this, this paradigm that we're operating under essentially um, sucks out the, 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 the capacity for leadership. You know, it just the structure of it, it just becomes a, a managerial operation. Everything's just run by managers and on the basis of the, the newest science or whatever science they have at the, at the moment. Um, so do you think this is something that, that can be overcome or is this, does this resonate? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, these people claim to have the, the mantle of science and the mantle of expertise, but they're crazy and they're evil. 
That's what the process is the punishment. And the, the bureaucrat serves the process. The total state, you know, Nietzsche, great. There's this great passage uh, in um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It's the new idol. And he says there that the state is the death of peoples. It's the coldest of all cold monsters. It just devours the real organic life of a regime to make it serve its own twisted purposes, which I think to make it real, that's the bureaucracy. The bureaucrat is the human type that mans the state. They are loyal to nothing except the process. And the process legitimates everything in their minds. The military is like this. You, you're not loyal to the country. You're not loyal to the flag. You don't care about the civilian populace. Military, and this is something I saw repeatedly. Military leaders were loyal to the Marine Corps. They were loyal to the institution with no sense of something outside of it. And what you ultimately get is opposition to the life of the people. You get, but what, what does Nietzsche also say is that, you know, you can't, that's not a sustainable thing. And he says, he concludes that passage by saying that those who are at the fringes, they become uh, capable of taking that system down. They are where you find real opposition at the edge of the empire, and then they face inward. You know, you can't, Horace, the the Latin poet uh, Horace says, you can drive nature out with a pitchfork, but she always returns. And our regime is desperately trying to drive out nature. Women are just like men. You can cut off your genitals and be a different gender. Um, You can print as much money as you want, and there are no consequences, blah, 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 blah. Down the line you go, nature will return. And the, the science and expertise practiced by our ruling class, it has no connection to reality. It, it, it is, they have, someone like Anthony Fauci took the medical establishment, the real medical science, um, eviscerated it, pulled off its skin, and then wears it as a cloak. That's, that's how these people operate. And so, yeah, institutions are very powerful, but they're not invincible. And we are in a time of profound decline. The reason someone like myself has become as popular or has grown as much as I have in a very short amount of time is because this regime is in total collapse. It's, it, you can't, they couldn't be goat herders in Afghanistan. All the war college degrees in the world didn't do jack squat against um, these goat herders from, the, from you know, uh, the Pashtun warriors out of the Hindu Kush. They didn't know what to do with them. We outspent the Taliban 100,000 to one, and they took their country back using small arms. It's like you can't, this regime is not powerful, and those institutions are not powerful either. Yeah. Was this a reason um, why you decided to speak out? You know, the the fact that you felt that, okay, you know, because you are you're a so-called face lord. You have your name yeah. face yeah. out there. You're you're you know taking people on uh, very directly um, without uh, any sort of uh, dissimulation. So yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, did you feel something in the air and say, okay, you know, it's time it's time to talk about this stuff because I'm I'm the person to do it. Yeah, no, I had a a friend of mine, a teacher. He once asked me. So we we're talking about the military. This was in the spring before I really kind of became active on on social media. And he was saying, he was, you know, we're talking about the military. I was talking about reformers. He said, well, you know, who's the highest ranking reformer in the DOD? Like, who could President Trump pick and have them be the, the, the person to reform the military? Like, what's the highest? Is it a colonel? Is it a you know, general? Who is it? And I told him, I said, you are looking at the highest ranking reformer in the military. 
it's it's literally, and I, that's not to toot my own horn. It's to say there is literally almost no one else, no one. I mean, I, I was a, a lieutenant. I got promoted to captain. I was a junior company grade officer. And I was, as I looked at this, I was like, no one is saying what needs to be said. And a lot of this civilians don't understand the military. They're deferential to it. And I said, oh, no, I spent four years here. I saw all kinds of, I saw some wild stuff. And I was like, just incompetence is insanity. I was just like, I can't believe what I'm looking at right now. But then everyone around me was like, well, this is just fine. This is how we do things. It's like, no, it's not how we should do things. So in that sense, I would say, yeah, I saw the opportunity in the fact that I was like, I don't know anyone else who's going to say these things. And I, the way I became you know, social media famous is I just asked a question to a general. But it's like people have a certain spiritual constitution. And I kept poking at these senior leaders on social media. And then I got the exact response that it's not even an ideological or a reasoned account. It's that spiritual inclination. He saw in me the everything he hates. How dare you? You can just see him. Oh, we got to stop this kid. And then, boom, you lit the match. General Donahoe, these people sow the seeds of their own destruction. And sometimes these things are mysterious. I mean, not to be all mystical or whatever, but I was reading Xenophon's Anabasis. Xenophon was a student of Plato, excuse me, a student of Socrates. And uh, he led the Scythian expedition of the Greeks against the Persians. Anyway, to summarize, at one point, the Greeks are totally outnumbered by the Persian armies. They're, They're surrounded by enemies. And in that, in, in the night, Xenophon, um, who uh, scholars say he's in his late 20s in, in the book, young man, has no leadership ability in the army. He's just a, basically a gentleman soldier. He's, uh, there, the army's leadership has been destroyed. The army itself is in chaos. They're surrounded by enemies. And Xenophon goes to sleep. And in the dream, he sees the, the fire, Zeus, the fire from heaven, descends on the house of his father and ignites it. And Xenophon wakes up and then he exhorts himself. He says, if I do nothing, we will be destroyed. And then he says, but I can do something in this moment. So Xenophon uh, goes out in front of the Greeks and, he, uh, and, and these troops and he gives them this, um, uh, this, this powerful rhetorical speech and says, look, I, I, I'm going to lead you now in this moment. And so uh, I would say oftentimes moments are like that. The occasions to... Uh, do something great or excellent or even make a difference in some small way, I think reflect this kind of, sometimes the divine fire is simply there and you see the dream or the vision and you say, look, I think something can be made of this. And time will tell, you know, I'm not going to say I'm Xenophon, you know, Xenophon was a much greater, you know, I would say even a philosopher than, than someone like me, but it's inspiring nonetheless. And I think it shows, you know, Machiavelli is good on this too. Action, 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 seize the moment. Seize the moment and, and say what you have to say and think about the problems and then make the claim and then see what happens. And so far, I've gotten a lot of traction on it. And I think it's been helpful for a lot of people who don't understand what the military is like. And I hope to do even more. I hope this, this you know, my work goes viral, quote unquote, and, and impacts real policy. That's the aim. Very, and I'm very clear about that. You know, that's what I want to see, um, see happen. I hope so, too. Um, I've 
and and I, I really like this. Essentially, it's a it's a white pill that you're presenting. It's a very hopeful message. And uh, someone else gave me this this message on this podcast. Um, uh, Ernst van Seil. He is um, it's kind of a, a dissident figure in South Africa, and as you probably heard, they they have some problems down there as well. Uh, and he's one of the people trying to very energetically, very patiently putting himself in, in quite a significant amount of danger, uh, solve them or find you know solutions and 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 a place where I'd be like, yeah, man, you probably should leave. <laughs> but he's like, no, this is my land, you know? And he said that, you know, he was, he's animated by this, you know, like you said, by this fire, by this opportunity to show up and, um, you know, not be the last man, you know, not be, yeah, yeah. yeah just, just, yeah. To, to present yourself at the, at the gates of history and, and, and take your claim. And I think that's, you know, that's like the whole cycle of, you know, hard times, weak men and all yeah, this. Right, this, right, is, right. this is the point where, where the, the hard men have to yeah. show up. Yeah. So yeah, why not? Well, why not? Indeed. You're right. Like you never know what's possible until you do it. That goes back to your early question. Well, how, what do you, what are the people capable of? I would say ultimately try it and find out. That's how you discover, you know, see what you can do. I, I mean, I hate people who are just depressed about everything. It's like, you're not, you're spiritually not in the right mindset. You have to understand what, what the possible is. Um, politics is the art of the possible in, in many ways. Um, yeah. and so you, you figure yeah. it out. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I started this podcast on in January of, of this year, and it's 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 it went really well. I've had some some you know spicy guests on, and you know, I, I kind of I'm waiting for the you know the hammer to drop eventually or or something like that. But actually, nothing's really happened. No one's really attacked me. You know, I feel like there's there's much more space out there. Obviously, some people will say that's because I'm a Fed, <laughs> but uh, you know, no, nothing's you know, I haven't really um, been you know eviscerated by the regime because. I think it's also like you say, you know, I think it's, it's time. I think it's time. If people have stuff to say, if people want to show up and they want to platform other people, they want to have interesting conversations, this is the time to do it, you know? And, and that's, that's what I felt as well. Like at, at the end of last year, you know, I've, I'm also not, not very like a seasoned Twitter user. Anyone that's been on, on social media for a long time, but I just saw, you know, people were saying interesting stuff and, you know, it, it's, you know, Things that you know were, were talked about for for a long time, for like tens, you know, decades, and in, in forums and all that type of stuff, but it was slowly seeping into the mainstream. So, you know, there's there's definitely something happening, and it's you know, like you said, you know, the battle with nature is uh, is, is temporary. It's just it can't be permanent. No, it's it's not permanent. And but the problem is, you can get a long periods of insanity, and so if you're going to avoid that, you just have to try, make an effort, right? Like. And the Soviet Union withstood the forces of nature for 70 plus years. And I think there's a very compelling argument that eventually just the devastating losses they took in World War II were just too much to eventually overcome. They couldn't sustain, you know, I forget what percentage of their male population was killed. I think between the ages of 18 and 35, it's something like 20 percent. But don't quote me on that. But it's something like that. It's ridiculous. Like, how do you recover from that as a regime? Um, so yeah, I don't want to, I'd like in my lifetime, I'd like to see things get dramatically better. Um, and I think there's a real possibility for that. So that's why I do what I do. Yeah. And you've had a, a recent, uh, piece in American greatness about the, the future of, uh, of the, uh, army or, or what you would like the future to yeah. be as a reformer, as the, the most yeah. <laughs> reformer in the army. Yeah, right, 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 right. Um, 
I would say the argument that I make there is that the 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 American people, if you're on the right and you want to make a difference, I would say you need to we need to get the um, approval rating for the military below 40 percent. That's the number I've chosen. Well, below 50 percent, um, because if it's close, then in some sort if it's used, it's going to be tight. But if it's below 40 percent, I, I just don't think the Biden regime is going to want to use the military to crush internal dissidents, right? It just makes it hard to use. It makes it so you can't just lie to people. You have to use force uh, as opposed to fraud. Um, so I would say I'm going to keep the drumbeat up until Pew Research does the poll and they say, you know, approval for the military is below 40%. Then we can start having real conversations about the military. And I'd say what I really want to do is create a recruiting crisis. Make this painful. If I had any message for, for young people and for young white men in particular, do not join the military. There is nothing there for you. Nothing. There is the weapons training, the skills. I've heard this argument. If you want weapons training and skills, go buy a gun, go out to a local range and practice. And if you do it, uh, if you do, if you shoot once a month, you will shoot so much more often than your average soldier or Marine. It's not even funny. In my time in the Marine Corps in the fleet, I think we did um, two ranges as a battery and we ne and never with the whole number of personnel, maybe three. They just, we didn't have the allocation for ammunition. We just didn't have it, right? A lot of our gear was simply broken. It just wasn't combat effective. So, you know, people are like, well, I'm going to get the military skills and discipline. It's like it, this regime, it's, that's not, I just don't think the value is there. And I've changed on this position. I would have said the same thing a couple of years ago. Well, you know, I take the good with the bad. At this point, no, no, you you, not, you need to find something else. And you can encourage spiritedness, patriotism, service to your community. Um, you don't need to do it through the military. And I'm telling you, recruiting crisis will get people's notice. That'll be like, oh, snap. I mean, just look at all those Marines killed in Kabul. It's like, that's that, killed by idiocy. No proper security procedures. You're helping rescue all these Afghans, who the people who weren't willing to fight for their own country that they get to come live in ours. How does that fare? How is it fair that people who won't fight and die for their own regime want Americans to come fight and die so that they can come live here? So that, that you want to go die for that? You want to go be draped in the flag for that? Really? I think if you're, if you're a young man today, you totally, I, I just, I would say the one thing you can deny the regime is access to your body and to your mind. Do any of the generals in the present uh, U.S. Army um, do they do they even believe that a war can be won? Do they even want wars to be won? Uh, I would say a lot of them don't think about war, so probably not. That's like Major General uh, Joe Clyborne talking about her nail polish on Twitter. I saw a general today. He was talking about playing video games. It's like this is not serious. These people are not serious. Um, they're you know. I think they just don't think about the problems. I think the, I'll give another example. I was at a war game. We were essentially playing out the war with uh, with China in the Pacific. And um, at the end of the war game, someone was like, well, at this point, the Chinese would use nuclear weapons to defend themselves. And it was like, okay, war game over. I was like, wait a second. How are you supposed to win that? How, let's talk about that problem. No one was interested. Why? Because it puts you out of business if you're in the military industrial complex. Or very, we could. That, that, and I would say, why do I say I'm the highest ranking military reformer? Is that just hubris? 
what I'm saying is I want to reform the military as in I want to slash the DOD budget. I want to see the army turned back into the early Republican military that we have. When Congress declares war, then you go out among the people and you build an army out of citizens. This professional military that we have, A, it's not very professional, as you see from their social media engagement. And B, they're not, they don't know anything about winning wars. They don't know anything about it. At most, the special operations guys, I think, are competent at firefighting. I think that in terms of like in a firefight, they can shoot the enemy and win sometimes, though not always. You know, as we saw like Operation Red Wings, when they shot down that helicopter, the, the Taliban shot down the helicopter, killed the Navy SEALs, the Marcus Luttrell story. You know, they're not they're not super soldiers. You know, they're 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 trained, but they're not um, you know, not they're not so overpowering that they can't be defeated um, by a competent enemy who's just a small group of non-trained soldiers. Um so yeah, I would say to, to answer your question, no, no one's consider, considering winning. They're not even considering fighting. They, they know, I think a lot of people know deep down, there's no way. I, or it's the conflicts just look different and our military is not competent to address them. That's the real problem. So what is the purpose of the, the U.S. Armed Forces now in, in, its, in their own perspective? It's a jobs program. Okay. It's like you're giving jobs to... Um, uh, lower middle class whites, women, minorities. Um, uh, it's a it's a grift. It's a huge section of the pie that gets spent on military contractors. It's like the money we give Israel that gets turned around and spent at Raytheon's door. It's not nothing to do with Israeli security or something. It's all, it's all you're milking the teat. You know that's what that's. I think yeah, that's what the Pentagon exists to do. It's, it's a jobs program for. Um, like D3 athletes at American colleges who don't want to sit behind a desk and, you know, that, that type, and then liberal and increasingly a large number of liberal uh, status drivers who like the, who like the idea of like putting on the uniform and like having, Oh, I'm in the Pentagon. They like that kind of stuff. Harvard grads, that kind of thing. They like that. Yeah. Uh, it, It does seem like the ultimate girl boss you know, <laughs> office to, to get to. Um, I mean, I've, uh, I have a friend who was in the, in the, um, uh, UK military, uh, and he was complaining, uh, about women, uh, in the military and it was, it wasn't a new thing. They, they've been in the military, but they were kind of expanding the reach of, you know, putting women in, in special forces. And he was describing to me, just not only, you know, the toll it took on, on morale, you know, just having uh, mixed groups. I mean, what, what he was saying was that everyone was having intercourse uh, at all times. And it was, it was quite a, you know, a debauched situation, but you know, the the women were, were, you know, even, even with all the help that the men had to offer them, you know, and cause they, they were, I don't know, a, a team that had to, I, there's a lot of physical challenge, and apparently yeah, the women yeah. were getting stress fractures in their legs, in their femurs, in their hips. Like it's, it's not a thing that I would can't even imagine how terrible that should be. And apparently that was with help, with people yeah. carrying their their equipment. So, uh, you know, what, what for? <laughs> Why? Well, <clears throat> there's a good book by uh, Martin Van Crevel, who's an Israeli military historian, who I find in particular really valuable. He wrote a book called. Uh, I think it's men, women, and war, um, talking about women in the military. And he makes a great point there. He says, you know, once the military, and, and Van Crevel is the one who really got me aware of the problem of state-on-state warfare. It was like, how, how do you fight a nuclear-armed state? Oh, it turns out this is a huge problem. Um, 
he says, you know, once war becomes unserious and you don't fight them in the way that you're supposed to, i.e. against a conventional opponent, um, the military need for military virtue declines. So yeah, then you can have people who are overweight. You can have, um, I like this, the breastfeeding moms, new moms. Like, are you really, I mean, I, I, I get this is all, oh, this is so misogynistic, incel, virgin, blah, blah, blah. How are you supposed to give a gun to a new mother and tell her to charge a hill? And the, the point is like, well, we would never do that. They're going to do things here, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. It just means you're no longer thinking about winning, thinking about killing the enemy or defeating him. It's, it's about technical stuff. It's about administration. It's about making people's feelings, you know, feel good. Um, it's not about winning wars. That, does, that goes out the window. And you've seen that. So, you know, yeah. For a lot of feminists, the idea of joining the military is this, like, I'm going to really prove something to the man. And, and like you're pointing out, what you end up doing is you turn everything, you turn barracks into whorehouses. You turn, it's just horrible. It's indecent. I just, the indecency that I saw between men and women in the military was shocking. It's just, and not as a, even just, you know, oh, you're such a prude. I'm saying adultery, um, just gang bangs, uh, just inside, like uh, uh, unprofessional relationships, alcohol, drug abuse, domestic violence, rape accusations. I mean, I, I was talking to an NCIS investigator on Okinawa. He said 80 to 90 percent of the cases he investigated was trying to litigate P Marines or soldiers or airmen who are at public events, intoxicated and then sexual touching and deciding whether or not it met the standards of sexual assault. It's like. You just can't have a functional military when you have what's basically adult high school playing out everywhere you go. And this isn't to say there are no patriotic women. I've met the, the kind of really like freakishly strong women who are able to do all these military things. But you're not building a military off of these um, like the, the most the fringes, like the most extreme examples. You're thinking about what how do you have a military in general? And no one thinks about this stuff. So now it's all about, oh, we got to have a lactation room in our military headquarters. And I'm not joking about that. Like, that's something that someone like Lieutenant Colonel Scott Stevens, a big mill Twitter account, he loves that. You know, oh, we got to make sure. I was engaging with a woman, uh, Staff Sausage. Uh, she's like, oh, I was breast pumping in the field. It's like, I'm all for mothers. I love women. You know, I want women to be have their rights protected. I, I love smart, spirited women. Um, and one in particular who there's, you know, like my, my fiance, great, great, great gal, you know, I, but um, none of that is to say just to lie to ourselves about what the difference is by nature, right? That's so, that's ridiculous. And, and it leads you to this place of just insanity. Um, yeah. Anyway. No, and I feel that, you know, it, it kind of, you know, bites you back in, in a way because this is all kind of under under the the aegis of the of the project of liberalism to, 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 to free people, free people more, give them more degrees of freedom, uh, you know, let women in the military. But, you know, what you have on the other end is... Um, is, you know, stress fractures and, yeah. you know, the, the weird, uh, you know, the strange compulsion to prove something by pumping breast milk in the army barracks or, you know, just, it's, it's just insanity. I mean, I, 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 I have a degree in gender studies. I, I understand. I know the mind <laughs> of the enemy. I understand what, yeah. what goes on in there, but, uh, um, you know, it's, 
it's just crazy to me. Now I'm, I'm, I'm one of these women. I, I could probably, you know, go to the lactation room and I'd qualify for that now because I have a small baby. Uh, but it's just, I've, it's just does not make any sense to me without, if you take away that compulsion to prove something, there's no way, I'm sorry. There's no way a normal, well-adjusted woman would like to visit the lactation room at the, I don't know, platoon X or, or wherever. No, yeah. no, I think, uh, yeah, that's right. So I think what you're saying, normal and well-adjusted. Yeah. The family is in collapse in America, divorce, single motherhood, um, divorce, family law, vile. You can, uh, uh, this is American law, fifth amendment protection. You, you can, you're, you have to get a warrant to typically take someone's stuff. Very rare exceptions. Like if you use a gun in a commission of a crime, they can take that as evidence without, I am not exactly sure about the law, but mostly you can't have stuff taken from you without a jury of your peers. Um, you need a court decision. Like it's a process. You have due process of law, not so in the family courts. Children can be seized from a parent, generally the father, with nothing more than a restraining order. And so what you see is you see the collapse of the family, and then you have a lot of people who are not well-adjusted. They don't have normal instincts. They don't have normal sexual instincts. They're just, I'm amazed. The I would say earlier, you're talking about liberalism meaning freedom. So now in our time, allegedly more free, you're gonna have all this sex, anything goes. And it turns out a lot of millennials uh, are not having sex at all, or it's really bizarre setups, polyamory, but you know, multiple men with one woman, it's only fans. I would say liberalism far from being an ideology of freedom is an ideology of slavery. You are free only to pursue your vices. That's it. And if you want to do anything decent or noble, no, 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 no. That gets crushed. Like, um, you want to, you know, own a gun, defend yourself, train. Oh, that's going to be a real problem. We're going to, we're going to hassle you for that. Um, so yeah, I would say a lot of it is the social breakdown. And so you have these lost, a lot of lost young men and lost young women looking for order, looking for discipline, looking for community. And they find it in places like the military. Um, and it, But it's a problem. You just then have all these social problems that just become, that occupy most of your time. I would say when I was a platoon commander, it just, that was the dominant, just dealing with the issues. Um, what these people were having in their lives, often very tragic. And I don't mean to make light of this at all. It was horrible, horrible stuff. Um, yeah, but I think it goes to your point. It's like, yeah, this is this is what you get when you have this unhinged, you know, unhinged family and personal life. People are very unhappy, deeply, deeply unhappy. Yeah, and they're and they're looking for something, and you know, they 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 imagine that the military might be their solution. Uh, but <laughs> once they get there, it's all about lactation rooms and gangbangs. Well, you know, <laughs> welcome. Yeah, yeah, welcome, welcome. Yeah, uh, there. Um, I think um, my friend Mary Harrington had a, an interesting article recently uh, where she described kind of a, a divide between kind of two factions in, in U.S. conservatism. You know, you have uh, kind of the boomer cons, conservative, conservatives, conservatism Inc. And then you have yeah. conservatism Inc. in the sense that like the tattooed new generation that's, you know, much more energetic yeah. and much more, you know, kind of a bit more populist, a bit more uh, aligned with, um, you know, not, you know, 
they're not fusionists. They're they're not uh, upset about using the state to um, uphold a certain um, morality or certain values. Uh, you know, a, a predetermined script, not something that's constantly evolving and yeah. constantly ever ever freer, ever ever better. So. Um, I wonder what you think about that. So you've been you've been around, you know, Claremont. You've been kind of in these circles recently. Um, do you feel that there's um, there's a kind of a changing of the guard, or is there a, is there a open conflict between these two? Because essentially, the old conservatives are liberals, and these mm, new yeah. ones are post liberal. They're not liberals. Yeah, I would say I would say you're seeing a bit of both. I think you're seeing open conflict. I think in the Trump administration, you very much saw that the neocon faction ended up by the end with a few exceptions, excuse me, um, by the end, they basically occupied the White House. Guys like H.R. McMaster, who I ratioed on Twitter, by the way, that's a point of honor for me myself. Um, He deserved it. Um, You know, guys like that, that's a neocon. You know, he's just, he was all, he kept Trump in Afghanistan. Now, I've talked to people who were in the room. That was the guy pushing Trump to not end the war. And Trump listened to him. And that, I, you know, it's not ideal. But, you know, I would say Trump represented a new kind of this boomer who went off the rails in comparison to everyone else. Now this guy's out there talking about immigration, trade, war. These issues that Americans since Pat Buchanan, that's not you're not you don't get a voice in that. More immigration, more war, less you know, and more, quote unquote, free trade. And Trump really fought back on that. So you're talking about this new wave of young conservatives, some of which. I think there's promise. A lot of it is cringe as, you know, if, and and this isn't to dog on people specifically, I'm not subtweeting anyone, but it's really hard to be um, a critic of the regime when you're in Washington, DC. And I don't expect reform to come from DC. Like that's not, uh, it's great that there are people who are saying interesting new things. I'm, I'm, I think it's awesome, but I'm not going to say, Oh, it'll, everything will be better when the post liberal right takes over. I, I, I think there are problems there too. Oftentimes we get really confused as to what the aim is. Like the, you know, the libertarians, that faction, that's part of it, very based, criticizing the federal reserve, American foreign policy. Awesome. Gun, the, the um, weed and gay marriage, cringe, the, the defense of private institutions who can do whatever they want. Like, Oh, tyranny is fine. If it's Twitter doing it and not the white house, like, that's crazy. Um, but saying, oh, well, we're going to take over the administrative state and use it against the left, that's, that's insanity. And I think also people sometimes lose their mind over some of the religious warfare stuff. Like uh, to use one example, but this is an ecumenical critique. Well, you know, if we just had a Catholic government, that would solve all our problems. No, it really wouldn't. It's like, no, that's that Catholic dogma about the Eucharist or about baptism. If you, th- there's plenty of arguments for why that may be true, but as a political project, Catholic monarchy is not going to solve our problems, right? Like that's not, most Americans for one would find that to be just totally ridiculous because they're not Catholics who believe in monarchy. To use, I think one example, but you see a lot of this, like if only we had a religious re- revival that would solve all our problems. And I'm super edgy because I'm more trad or something. And oftentimes that's, it's really not going to go anywhere. It's just, it's, it's, it's dead on arrival, if you will. And um, I think betrays the kind of a lack of real leadership and thoughtfulness from those on the right capable of giving it. So, but that's a, that's a deeper problem that, you know, I think I'm trying to help as much as I can. Um, but, um, you know, I'm just one guy. 
I, I completely agree with you. I, uh, I think that's, yeah, you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head with, uh, with the critique of post-liberalism. Um, the difference between liberals and post-liberalism is that post-liberalism, whatever direction it comes from, it has to stake a claim in terms of values. So it has to make uh, explicit, positive statements about what type of regime it wants to see. And then you have, you know, we have Catholic integralism as being the more recognizable of the regimes, just because people know what Catholicism is and kind of at least, you know, you can open, you crack open a book and see in, in general what, what, the, what the outline of it can be. But I, I, I personally believe that, you know, any regime has a value set. You know, the problem with our regime now is that the values are implicit and um, they're not, you know, they're not laid out. They're they're kind of the value of uh, it's, it's tolerance, but as, you know, as the fundamental value and then completely run amok uh, and then also um, used by the people who, you know, like you said, you know, there's a there's this whole managerial apparatus that uses this value system to extract rents for itself, you know, be it Raytheon, be it, you know, whatever social services department or, you know, that, that, that kind of can, can grow like a mushroom on this idea that, you know, there are no limits. We want to create freedom for everyone. And, you know, so, um, even in a regime that's, you know, says that, you know, there, there, there are no values. We're essentially open. We're just debating things and marketplace of ideas, blah, blah, blah. There are core values and people act on them and they're quite, they're quite, powerful values. They're not, you know, they're not don't tread on me. They're very religiously, uh, I mean, yes. tingly values. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's, this is kind of the stalemate that a lot of, you know, that, that they're, they're, the, the difference between, you know, the, the liberals who are kind of scared of what, what will the values be? Because I feel they, they also know that there, there needs to be something that is, you know, is a healthy substrate that can support uh, uh, any sort of society and it has to be, I mean, it may, it may not be the 10 commandments, uh, but it, need, it needs to be some, like you said, you know, a positive set of, of rules, you know, um, that need to be respected like law and the law is a law and it needs to be respected. And, uh, you know, like you alluded to before, if the law is not in line with the values, the law is completely disregarded like it is right now. Yeah. So it's um, I don't know. To me, that's that's the problem. Um, you know, like you said, a lot of it is cringe. I'm curious to see what what comes up next. You know, maybe there's maybe there's non cringe coming up. I hope so. Yeah. No, I'm excited for that too. And I think this is a moment of great opportunity in a sense of um, it's not. I, I think there are real alternatives out there. And and you know, for all of us who are interested in these questions, there's opportunity, right? It's just social media is very democratic in that way, very populist. Like I logged on to a Twitter account. I engaged with the military. I keep engaging. I keep writing. People uh, read what I write. I've gotten mill Twitter mass reported me um, because I've been criticizing their gods again. So I got suspended by Twitter for like 12 hours um, for, for violating this, the, the, the decency, the civility of our regime. So that's a danger, right? You have to be careful not to get banned, but then, uh, you have to keep the message incisive and strong. And I think people gravitate to strength. And I think things will surprise the left. I, I would say, too, I'm not as interested in institutions or organizations. Like, and I'm not faulting anyone who thinks that's important. I, I just want to say the virtues, Machiavelli in book, I believe it's book three, chapter one of the Discourses on Livy, he says, that a regime is reformed in one of two ways. It is reformed 
either through the actions of one great man or it is reformed through the actions of the law or the institutions. But then what does he say about the institutions? They're reformed by a great man. Um, and so what I would argue there is um, that you have to find a certain kind of character. You're trying to cultivate a certain kind of person. That's much more important, I think, than building the right network or something. You have to form yourself in the right way. So when whenever people ask me what they can do to change things, I say, well, um, you know, look at your own personal life, read good books, make good friends, um, lift weights, uh, do things that encourage real bodily and, and mental and spiritual virtue. Um, and, and I think that will ultimately prove to be more effective than um, trying to get the right white paper written or something. I, I don't know if that's the most effective way. Not to say there's no place for it, but cultivate the virtues and wait for the opportunity and then strike. That's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I've, I've had an, another guest on here who's actually studied this, this problem. Um, uh, Samo Buria, he's kind of like this, this guy mm. who studies um, the life cycle of regimes. And he's also uh, looking at the data. He's also a, a very strong uh, proponent of kind of a great man of history theory. I mean, never has, you know, like Machiavelli noted, never has a regime changed uh, without the guiding light, the guiding leadership of someone who was the representative of all the virtues that the regime should have. So yeah, yeah. maybe we don't need uh, philosophers. Maybe we just need a Napoleon type <laughs> American. <But, theater. laughs> yeah. In the ideal world, you'd get wisdom and power would be united. You'd have someone who's both wise and able to rule. Um, and, you know, when I mean, talk about great men, it's like, you know, you always have, it's not, there's never, you always need excellence. Now, the problem, of course, is that dictatorship or Caesarism or all these things that people are flirting with now. Now, how do you sustain that in a way that doesn't cause per much greater problems? And that's, that's, a, that's a constant source of, of problems. Um, so I would say that's where you have to be thoughtful about it. And I, I think it would be awesome to reform the country without needing to blow everything up. Uh, that would be awesome. But you have to find people willing to do the reforming and, and how, where are you going to find those people? Um, you know, I'm trying it in my small way, but. Yeah. Do, do you think there is uh, there is a possibility to continue this politics without politics or will politics have to come in, you know, s somewhere because at the moment we essentially have a, a, a front uh, and you have, you know, all this, uh, all essentially the, the bureaucrats are, are running the show. The managers are running the show. Uh, theoretically, if you actually drill down into what the regime believes about itself is that you don't really need democracy if you have facts on your side, you know, things can be run scientifically. Mm. So, um, you know, in a way you kind of have to dismantle at least this uh, paradigm before you can, uh, you know, you can bring in leadership because, you know, this, the, the, this machine runs itself. Um, you know, why would you need leaders when you have uh, science or, you know, knowledge? Yeah, yeah you know, the decree of uh, of, of expertise. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, the, a bit of revolution has to has to happen, even if it's within the, you know, the, the hollow shell of, of whatever institutions are still are still there. You know, it might be called the State Department, it might be called the military, but it would have to run very differently for uh, for leadership to actually be effective in there. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm, that's, I think what I'm arguing for is I want to strip power from the experts and give it to the people because the experts are treating their credentials from Yale or the Harvard business school or the JFK center of government or whatever. They treat that like a divine right to rule. 
So I think you're right. You have to strip them of that and be like, no, that's, that is, it might be useful in our time. I think not, but um, you know, that you have to have consent. I, I, in that way, that's, that's my moderation and, and centrist position, if you will, is I, I want there to be fair, free elections where people get to vote for their leaders and people can defend their rights and have leaders that want to do that. Um, but that requires that the people share a sense of justice. And that means you can't just import the entire third world to serve as a battering ram against the population. And that's what the Democratic Party wants to do. I would prefer that we leave the third world alone. Stop trying to rule people without their consent. Stop killing random Arabs over um, you know, t- t- a terrorism threat that could be solved with better immigration controls. That doesn't make sense to me. I- I'm, I'm very much opposed to um, the kind of uh, pious murderousness of the liberal project. We're, we killed you in the name of gay rights and democracy, so it's fine. No, it's not fine. Stop. Um, and, and, you know, that means stripping power from the experts. And I think that's Trump kicked that off in, in politically in a big way, but he's not done. And, you know, he might have a real successor. Not yet, but um, he could get one. And so if you're a conservative institution, you should be all about trying to find that guy and really trying to see how can we keep the ball rolling? What's the excellence that we need to find and cultivate to, to get that? More than any white paper or trying to understand theory or something like that. And talk about names and places. People talk about, spend too much time with abstractions. And it makes it hard to understand reality. Yeah, I agree. And you are, um, you're doing your part in, in the best way, you're kind of that guy for the military and uh, you, you continue, you know, take, taking shots at them. And I'm, I'm happy you are because it, it, it does take power away from them. Even, you know, people say Twitter is in real life. Um, millions, millions of people see, see these interactions uh, and see, you know, the, uh, the way they're exposed because if, you know, like a lot of this stuff, I didn't, I didn't realize how cringe these people were until you started engaging with them and, yes. you know, how, how far, far gone. <laughs> and these are like high ranking officers. Like this is not, you know, your <laughs> like uh, lower middle management. No, this is serious no. people. Uh, so I think you're, you're doing God's work there. Um, so we're, we're coming up on time here a little bit. Uh, I want to yeah, ask yeah. you the question of the show. Everyone gets asked this question. Um, yeah, and yeah. Your recommendation of a subversive thinker that you think people should look into, read more of, um, yeah, some someone interesting that you've uh, discovered. Man, oh, there's a lot. Um, I think for most people, the subversive thinker that I've found is someone who's, I think, a, a critic, if you will, outside the mainstream. Um, right now, that book, Stalin's War by Scott McMeekin, very, very good analysis of World War II from a perspective that you don't often see. He's looking at it through the Soviet Union's eyes. So he's been very influential on me in a very real, tangible way. Um, I think someone like John Locke that is a very subversive thinker in his way. In our time, it's very subversive. He's uh, very much in favor of Christianity, of uh, resistance to tyranny, of Republican government, of decency. That's a defender of um, manly virtue. And honestly, I, I mean, I'd say the second treatise in particular is pretty readable. I mean, it's not, it's not impossible for someone with a a college education, especially to read and understand. Um, it's not a long treatment either, but it's very, very good. 
Machiavelli is another one I would say. I'm answering your question probably more. I'm throwing out lots of authors, but you know, Machiavelli and the Prince, uh, that gets very hard headed. Just get back to reality. Just, mm, just the two by four of nature beating you upside the head. Machiavelli, so good. You know, you need to figure out the names of the people who rule. Don't talk about abstractions if you can help it. There's a place for that. Talk about who rules, who, whom, who is in power. Machiavelli relentlessly focused on real historical examples, the actual mechanisms of power, and and how that's used both against, and against the people. And Machiavelli is more subversive. Take it's very populist. These liberals not populist at all. Machiavelli says in the Prince, the people just want to be left alone. He says, you should leave them alone. That's his advice. That is extremely subversive in our time. Um, and Locke is going to say the same thing, but more, more nicely, I think. Um, but again, those are authors who I think uh, are deeply subversive in our time and, and I think worth promoting. Um, yeah. Hard-headedness. I, I I agree with you, and I feel like you know this conversation's kind of um, I felt I feel like it's very very illuminating because I I I agree with you on the idea that um, you know a lot of people waste a lot of time, probably myself included, thinking about the you know the very the- theoretical aspect of you know of 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 leadership. You know what what should it be? How should we make it? But in the end, it really does boil down to you know there there are some. There is natural law and it is kind of instinctive a lot of times. And if if a leader, you know, picks up the crown of France with a sword uh, and, uh, you know, shows up and be it, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, the, the maximum leader of, uh, of the right. world emperor or somebody, yeah. but someone, you know, even at a, at a local level, you know, it kind of assumes that role. Uh, a lot can be done, uh, but it does. You need to change your frame from, you know, being led by history to, to, to being that type of person who, who becomes that. And yeah, it's, it's not easy, but yeah, it's, uh, it's true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. And I would say people will be like, Oh, everything's going to hell in a handbasket to which I respond. What have you local? I mean, people don't get it in America with the States. There are state politics, oftentimes much easier to win elections at that level with there. It's not, it's different. You can do things, you can change things. And the more, if you, the small wins turn into big wins real quick. Um, so I think people who spend too much time detached from reality, they then really struggle with the problems. They get depressed, right? They just don't make real friends. If, if nothing else, make real friends in real life. You know, do things where your body is involved. And that's what the, the point about weightlifting or physical movement in the body. It's like, you are your body, your mind, your body. They depend on one another. You are not some disembodied soul. Um, and so that applies to politics. Learn the names of the people in power. St- don't get lost reading like Marx or something. Ah, it's not going to help you as much as just seeing what type of person rules and what what do they do and who, who are their allies. Um, I think that's a much more effective um, way of going about political life. Absolutely. And, uh, it's also quite the white pill. I mean, it, you know, cause it, yeah. yeah, this tends sometimes to be a, a pretty like doomer type of 
podcast where we talked about decline and collapse and stuff like that. But this is this is also kind of how how you fix this. You know, it, it's fixable. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about you know my my ancestors, like just my direct ancestors, like my my uh, great grandfather on my my dad's side. He was in a in a work camp. You know, he was like you know history happened very directly to them, and you know things were much worse than I can I can yeah. imagine. I know COVID's terrible, and we're you know stuck in our houses and where we have to wear masks and everything, but. Is definitely not, you know, even generationally not the worst thing that's ever happened. So yeah, things can change, and uh, I'm I'm happy that you know there are people like you out there making it happen, yeah. and yeah, and and speaking out very very well. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, it's like the mask stuff. It's, yeah, you have to wear the mask unless you don't. You just push back. See how much you can get away with. Become ungovern ungovernable. Um, there's a great Twitter user at Russian Cosmist. And he's, he's stuck in Canada, oppressed by just the nanny HR state. And that guy keeps spirited resistance at all times. And it's, of course, it's very powerful, very powerful. You know, it's like uh, Michael Anton in his Flight 93 essay quotes Osama bin Laden saying, everybody loves the strong horse. Women love strength. Men love strength. People just like it when they see people who are not cowed by petty authority and, you know, passive aggressive, you know, bitchy regime, you can fight back against that a lot more easily than you think. Um, so like I said, you know, just keep putting, you know, once you start posting W's, I mean, <laughs> that can rack up real quick. And that's all it's all about. Like I look at my Twitter account, it's like steady, solid growth. People are paying attention. It's awesome. It's like every day is a white pill. I wake up and I'm like, today I have done I've waged spiritual warfare against this establishment that is all this money and resources. And I'm winning. I'm winning. I keep winning. I keep ratioing two, three star generals and their lackeys. I just keep owning. They're, you're getting owned and they're helping me do it. It's awesome. I keep it. I will keep going until Twitter bans me. Um, and I'm hoping to make that a long time from now. And I think even when they do ban me, it won't be enough. You have to, if Machiavelli, a van comes in, if you really want to defeat someone, you have to kill them. And, and no one I can think of is trying to assassinate me. So, you know, I can keep writing. I can, you can't stop me, not yet. Um, and they can try and maybe they will. But, um, you know, people get too lost, too depressed, too in their own heads. So I need real friends and, you know, yeah, get out of your head sometimes. Yeah, I I completely echo that sentiment. Get out of your heads, people. Follow Josiah on uh, on Twitter. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, is it at uh, J Lippincott? It is. Yeah, underscore at the underscore. end. Exactly, yeah. and um, I will put that in the show notes. And also read yeah, thank essays you. at the uh, American Mind, at the American Conservative is the is the newest. And An American greatness. American greatness. Yeah, exactly. So all the Americans. He's on there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Federalist as well, which yes. is interesting, spicy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everywhere. Can't stop me. <laughs> Perfect. You'll get, I'm sure you'll have a Substack soon. Um, yeah. <laughs> inevitable, inevitable. It's like, hey, what happens when I get banned? I got to reach out to my dissident uh, right-wing followers or whatever from, from my email newsletter. Um, <laughs> it helps. It helps. That's, you know, yeah, on there. Well. everyone needs it. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much, This was yeah, thank a, you so a much. lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good one. I appreciate it. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, 
and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 